0: This is the aftermarket radio network. All right, hi everybody. Thanks for joining Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. Matt Fonzo I am. Matt Fonzo and I'm really happy about this next installment. I've invited none other than my wife. So, proof she does exist. She's not a figment of my imagination. And I've brought her on because she is a uh, alcohol and drug counselor, uh, full time, going to school for her uh, license. And we want to talk today about the kind of, kind of the road to redemption, the the path back, really from. We'll we'll just say some of the more negative aspects uh, that uh, addiction, or really. Terminology we should try to start using more is uh, substance use disorder and the path back to uh, society, family, you know, getting back, you know, another maybe a bad term and she can uh, go after me about it is trying to get back to normal. And that could be really dangerous uh, term to use there, but I'm going to tentatively toss that out. So. Thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, everybody. My name's Danielle Fonslow. I work as an alcohol and drug counselor in Rochester, Minnesota. We're changing some of the verbiage to substance use counselor and substance use disorders instead of addiction or alcoholic, drug addict, junkie, all those terms
0: so basically, all the pet names I have for you.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to kind of stop the stigma around people who have a substance use disorder.
0: Okay, so the nature, of how this came about, really, how we decided to really do this, is we were having a conversation on our way to uh, the airport to go visit my daughter and uh, fairly new granddaughter. We got to talking about. Uh, I don't know, I can't call her a mutual friend, maybe a friend of yours, an acquaintance of mine that we met through a uh, addiction community or recovery better yet, sorry, a recovery community. It really kind of started out uh how impressed you were that she finally got an apartment, and that got me to thinking about some of the trials and tribulations that it's kind of hoops that have to be jumped through uh, when starting to live in recovery and starting to get back into society, if you will, especially if you have uh, family, you know, uh, significant others, kids involved where you're maybe trying to get them back, get custody back or just start providing, start contributing, stuff like that.
1: So I can kind of speak to that or how I came about this conversation.
0: I I need you to speak to that.
1: Yes. (laughs) I had saw a post on Facebook that she just signed her lease to this new apartment. And the reason I haven't talked to her in a while, but the reason I uh, asked her about it was because I was excited. Like, where is this apartment so that I can recommend it to my clients who really struggle with getting any sort of housing. And I know from her background, she has a multitude of felonies. They're all drug related, no, no violent crimes, no uh, crime, sex charges, anything like that. And so when she said that I was excited, where is this? I figured she still lived in the community where I work and I could uh, recommend people to go there. So, she told me that it's in Omaha, Nebraska, so that <laughs> kind of shot that one out the window. But people really struggle, especially after fighting years and years with substance use disorders, finding a way back out. And when they do find a way back out, uh, trying to, like you said, normal, but I, I think try to reach these goals. So everybody is a little different with that. And i uh, Usually one of the most important goals is that they have autonomy and they can get in their own apartments or even buy a house. But mostly, you know, we just or they just want to be having a stable place to live. So that usually ends up being an apartment. But even the felony friendly apartments that we have in Rochester, Minnesota, are uh, far and few between. Or there will be contracts in there where an entire apartment building will have, we'll just say 200 units, I don't know, and only eight of them rent to people who have had uh, struggles or felonies or have a mental health uh, diagnosis or a substance use disorder. So they'll have eight of those. And there's over 200,000 people in Rochester, and there's a big uh recovery community down there. So I find that to be the hardest part uh, with this job is getting them to stability, which is always first and foremost.
0: Yeah, I don't I wish I had a better word than normal. I mean, that sums it up. I, I even hesitate to use, you know, back to contributing positively to society, and I don't even mean society itself, but, you know, what whatever your world is meaning maybe it's just you. You're single and you have to get those basic needs. And we're talking about a real fundamental one that is really horribly difficult to try to to gain. And then add on to that maybe people that rely on you, specifically kids, uh, or like I said, a significant on their husband, wife, something of that nature. And it's just one more obstacle, eight ball to be trapped behind. If that was the only one, uh, you know, maybe maybe you kind of like shrug your shoulders and you're like, well, you know, that's the game. But it isn't just that. It's it's so many obstacles and so many hurdles, both kind of part of the hoops to jump through. You know, it's kind of like, you mess up your room or you mess something up, you you got to clean it up. That's just the way it is. There's repercussions to actions, repercussions to choices. And I'm not saying people choose to have a um, substance use disorder or anything like that. They often find out the hard way that they have that and then the battle uh, to get control of it, uh, you know, and whatever that is, I mean. That could be a whole episode on its own. But they have all these other hurdles that are going to be there as partly a natural consequence, partly just the path back to society. And then, and I want to save this for later, uh, is kind of the ones imposed by society simply because they can, they kind of look down on you as this failure of a human being that, you know, "Ah, you're an addict. I can kind of treat you like this. Nobody's going to question it because (laughs) you're an addict. And maybe they don't even think it that way, sarcastically or um, mockingly even, but they really, they kind of think that way. But I I think we should hold that, uh, hold off on that a little bit. Uh, Some of the hurdles besides finding um, shelter, essentially, I mean, that stability of a shelter, that's the primary one, right? I, maslow's hierarchy i think the first one is finding shelter and it's become it's a just a massive pain to try to find Uh, so we have that you know going against them and they're battling this disorder man i mean you wonder why the relapse rate is so high at at what point and we're talking about one issue finding a place to live and you may have a felony on you and it has nothing to do with like you said violence it has all almost everything to do with the addiction and it's not we're no way justifying that you know oh need to cater to them they got they have this problem and they did this to support the problem, but now they're getting better. So now, you know, we got to bend over backwards. I, I don't want to imply that. But man, do you want to keep just throwing down these hurdles that are essentially, eventually contribute to driving somebody to just give up and say, "Eff it. What's the point? Everything's against me. I'm going to go cope the way I've learned to cope. That's one. Uh, I find another interesting one is employment.
1: Right. I, I was going to say that too. I would say first is stability. And then uh, how are you going to get stability without employment? And so I'll find a lot of times, you know, that, that'll that have to be the first thing they get as well uh, and struggle with because even filling out applications. I'm not sure if it's required anymore, but they used to have a question about uh, if you've ever been convicted of a felony. And so whether to lie, which is goes against everything in the recovery workbook, uh, it's supposed to be rigorous honesty. And if you don't have that, you're prone to relapse. Uh, use again. And so, you know, as much as I want to say, yeah don't lie or whatnot. It's hard not to think that way is if I lie and they don't because they're a small business or something, then maybe they won't run that background check. Usually, my conscience since I'm in recovery as well, <laughs> says to be honest, and we'll deal with the repercussions of that later and figure out a different path, which I can speak to some of my recovery too if if you want. so a a lot of times what I see is. My client's going to like temp agencies to work. And so they're getting paid less than if they were to be hired on or they'll go to these jobs, fill out the applications, run the background check, and then they're denied. And it's tough and it's discouraging for them. And I mean, my job is to lift them up and stay positive. And uh, with society and what I see is you're kind of set up to fail. And and like you said, too, where it's not to cater either, because first and foremost with any, and I'm going to kind of jump all over, but with uh, substance use disorders, they have to be ready to change. I mean, maybe everybody's heard that before, but truly they have to be ready. And what that just means is they have to say, all right, I'm done. I'm willing to do whatever it takes Uh, You guide me, I'll use the tools, and let's do this. And sometimes there's external motivators. So that could be either family. Uh, Many people have come in, they're like, my wife's going to divorce me, or my husband, or whatever, whatnot, however you want to. My significant other, my partner. Um, And so, you know, that's an external motivator where they're not doing it for themselves or a lot of times the legal system I would say 80% of my clients right now are involved in the legal system so that's their motivator and so it's all about getting that intrinsic motivation where they're doing it for themselves and in order for that to happen uh, they have to love themselves honestly and so many times they're coming in and they're broken and they're ashamed and they continue to shame themselves, not guilt, because guilt's been long gone. Um, they've already said sorry a hundred times over again. And so it's a lot of shame. And they think they're horrible people and they don't know how they're going to get back from this. And so, and that's mostly the ones who have the motivation uh, to want to do something different. So the ones that do not to kind of circle back here the ones that do not see it as an issue or an obstacle or whatever their use it's hard it's really hard to get through because they don't see it as a problem Uh, most of the time it's or at least what i see is you know it's it's the justice system they're trying to control me it's you know my parents my family and i'm not hurting anybody but myself uh and uh, I guess I went through all that myself, all the way until I was done. And so, an important part of like what others are doing, who are do not have a substance use disorder themselves, but one of their family members do, is to not enable them uh, to continue with that. So, whether that's putting money on their books at jail or uh, providing them a place to live for an extended amount of time. You know, if it's they come in and they're like, hey, I just need a place to stay because I really need help. I'm ready to do this. And then they're going and doing it. I absolutely support that. You know, like as we had said, housing is hard to find. So if there's a family member or a friend or whatever that's willing to give them a place to stay while they get back on their feet and kind of jump over these hurdles and attend treatment and they're doing all that, then great. I absolutely support that. But if they're in your house and they're continuing to use and. Uh, they're, you know, they're saying they're going to do this, that, and then it's a year later and they're still doing the same thing. Well, now, where does it cross between you're helping them and enabling them? That's kind of, yeah, off the beaten path. I, I know you said employment and it is hard because there, there's that motivation for change, too. And then, like, where do where do employers, how do employers see that? Like, are these people really in that change mode or are they not and are they you know getting a job to appease somebody else or are they thinking oh i'm going to be able to work and still use and and whatnot so that i have this facade to others or or whatnot usually a lot of the times um we protect protect our substance use disorders so we're trying to do anything that we can to protect that and so how do you tell the difference and many times you'll be able to if they've went to treatment they'll have a lot of that down but I know employers can do random UAs, and I, and I wouldn't shy away from that, I guess. And I don't know what you think, I guess, Matt, and I should, but random UAs holds them accountable. So if that's something you do for all your employees or whatnot, I know that's what I do in treatment.
0: I know that can get dicey. That That's something you almost have to look at legally, state to state. Right. Uh, if you can, how you can um, require or request a UA. Um I, I know for sure if there's a, any sort of an accident where somebody gets injured or there's property damage, they can request a UA. After that, I don't – you hate to say if you can or can't. I think that's a really – Well,
1: and that's hard, too, because marijuana, as well as legal in many states, are like prescriptions. And, and so it might not be the greatest solution. And are you – Taking that risk of just maybe hiring somebody with the background, and then if they don't work out, just willing to give them the chance, and then if they need to be let go, that's that's kind of what you do. Yeah, and that might be something too.
0: Yeah, and and with the um, you know, if you end up do hiring uh, again, it's not about catering to them; it's more about just not giving them even more stuff to deal with, and not stuff that any other employee would have to deal with. Uh, and we're presuming this, you know, quote unquote stuff is, you know, reasonable, but the stuff that you're making them go through or allowing happening to them, you know, what, you know, again, uh, coworkers, the way they treat them. And I know I keep kind of uh, drifting into this tangent of mine with the uh, the socially accepted hoops to make people jump through, and I'm not sure they're exactly fair. You know, as a leader, as a manager or whatever, allowing that to go, to go on. In many cases, it's easy to say like early on, you know, in the first few months of recovery, you, some days you're fighting to stay sober. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a battle to white knuckle it either through the day or to the next meeting or until you could call your sponsor or something of that nature but it still happens months and maybe even years down the road. It might be more random and be more inter- intermittent, but there's going to be those days where you're just, man, you're so close. You're just so close to just, I, I right or wrong and I'm no expert. It's almost terrible that I comment on some of this stuff that, but it just seems to me you kind of go into a zombie mode and whether you've consciously, really consciously made the decision, I'm going to go and find that thing. You're in the vehicle, you're, you know, whatever, we'll just say a dealer, just for conversation state, sake. And you've introduced it back to your system, however you go about doing that. And it's almost as if the moment it hits, you're like, oh no, I did it. That's not to like paint this picture of of woe and sorrow or anything like that. But that's just the reality. It's like why why would you want an environment for anybody, whether they're uh, you know, have a substance use disorder or a mental health issue diagnosed or not diagnosed. Why would you want to have an environment that would perpetuate anything like that? That could just remotely cause that. Again, I'm not trying to I don't I would not want to work In an environment where everybody's got to be handled with kid gloves or it's got to be just so uh, politically correct and whatnot. But on the flip side, I don't want a toxic environment at all either. Uh, So I I just think that employment, A, you know, hear these people out, interview them like you would anyone else. They may or may not tell you they have a substance use disorder or an addiction. They They may not tell you.
1: I'm guessing they wouldn't <laughs> most of the time.
0: The felony, they may not tell you either. And if you don't do background checks, and I'm not, I'm not promoting to the do them or not do them. What? Well, that's not the point. They may or may not tell you. But when they're there, it, now they're there. They're like any other employee. Are they doing the job? Are they showing up on time? The production levels where you would kind of expect them. And you know, I'm not promoting any numbers. Specifically, it's going to vary, I think. And are they reliable? And
1: Well, exactly, yeah.
0: It's any indicator, and it doesn't always have... This specific episode, we're talking about substance use disorder and revolving around that. But it's also just any problems at home. Somebody that's demonstrated over months, years, or whatever, all of a sudden becomes somewhat unreliable. You may want to pull them aside, him or her, pull them aside and... Find out is everything okay at home, and you may find out their home life is in shambles, having nothing to do with substance or whatnot. You know, a marriage, a relationship, a, a family member sick, whatever. I, I, here again, I start listing off examples. I don't know why I do it. You know, for the art conversation now, it's revolving around substance abuse, and if you could be the type of leader or coworker. That they can confide in that you could build that type of a relationship that they feel comfortable enough that if things are going off the rails a little bit, they could confide into you or confide in you, I should say. And that may lead to, you know, my first idea is let them get in touch with their sponsor ASAP. Uh, B, of course, if they have to leave a little bit early to find a meeting, this is where you probably would be much better off. Uh, making suggestions than me.
1: Yeah, giving examples. I guess all all of what you really said, I think uh, not treating them so different, uh, just like any other employee, ups and downs, th- things like that with a job. Are they being productive? I think they're going to go in there and work like anybody else. And so if you see a record or, or you do background checks and you see that and you get that nervous feeling where it's like, oh, they're going to be using in our facility and they're not going to do a good job and if these people are in recovery they're going to do fantastic I mean most uh, there's a lot of work that goes into using substances (laughs) it's a full-time job in itself so many times these people are motivated and when they're not using substances, they have to fill their time with something else, because that's a big chunk taken out of their life. And now what are they doing? If they're searching for a job, I mean, that's incredible in itself. And so if we're giving them a chance and just, you know, I see this, whatever, all right, I'm willing to give you a shot. Let's try this. And sometimes I don't want to say that it's always going to work out because we don't know that. But if they're truly doing what they're supposed to be doing and that might be calling their sponsor, that's a 12-step program. Um, But that could also be calling their mother, their best friend who holds them accountable and they just need that 10 minutes to go do that, to calm themselves down or whatnot. And like you had said, you know, be a leader that's supportive and it's not giving breaks every five minutes, you know, but it's just, hey man, is there something going on? Like you said, and do you want to talk about it? Do you have somebody that uh, you need to talk to about it? You can take 10 minutes and go do that if you want you know stuff like that and you just you're just open minded is the biggest instead of you know just tunnel vision on on certain things revolved around work Uh, because I truly believe that people are more productive I I think it's proven I guess I'm not an expert either but (laughs) about giving people breaks and not working them you know 10 hours a day straight and and they tend to be more productive that way. Um, But yeah, just as you said, with being supportive and specifically substance use disorders, but with anybody, uh, people have problems later in life as well. Like you had said with divorce and whatnot, and then they go to substances. And so, you know, you could also be in that preventative game too, where it's like, gosh, I have a really supportive job and, you know, they really listen to me or give me that time I need. And I don't want to go down this path, you know. And uh, something I think you had said earlier, maybe I I don't think I touched on it, but choice with the substance use disorder. So I, I do believe that when somebody is in the thick of it, they are using every day, all day, physically, mentally dependent on this that it's not a choice anymore. That choice was taken, you know, as they're using. Once somebody enters into sobriety, uh, it might be, I would say, you know, even like 15 days, 30 days into that. Now it's their choice if they go out and use. And so the important thing, getting a little bit away from employment, but the important thing is like putting things in their way so that they don't want to. And and that's what you want to build upon. And so I I absolutely tell my clients that now that you're sitting here sober, it's your choice if you go relapse. You need to find somebody that you can call, whether that's a sponsor or not, try new things. So a lot of times years and years and years of just doing the same thing. And now you're so out of touch you've never really tried anything different. And so you don't know how to have fun. You don't have things to look forward to. And it's just getting something to look forward to. So uh, some people go to support groups every week, and that's great because it puts it a routine. I would say the 12-step model is probably the easiest path to go uh, because it's all laid out for you. So this is what you need to do, boom, 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 right? And uh, you just get a sponsor, and they'll walk you through it. That's easy. So other pathways can be a little bit more difficult, but that could be faith-based uh, going to church on a weekly basis, getting a mentor through there, something like that where, you know, you believe in in whatnot and that's your faith. And then another way might be, you know, just having the routine of working out and you have accountability partners where, you know, you have your workout accountability and then you have somebody that's accountable, that holds you accountable for your substance use that you can talk to because you relate to them and you know and they know. So, it's just about trying new things and having things. And and one of those things is a job. And many people crave that to be able to just have a full-time job that pays enough to uh, support their housing. You know, lucky enough for me, I had you. (laughs) So
0: That's recorded.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, I think I had it easy in that, in that sense that I didn't have to, you know, I really didn't have to go find my own house.
0: To, to all my listeners,
1: yeah. Hopefully, it's <laughs> plural.
0: I have now leverage. Thank you. <laughs> There's really no reason to keep going on. Um,
1: now I-, I should be fine. So <laughs> I think I'm independent <laughs> enough. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I was just thinking about jobs too, but uh, the for like myself or whatnot, I went. The big reason I went to, well, I was told, when I was in treatment, I was told, gosh, you'd be a really good counselor if you ever choose to do this. So that's kind of, that's where it started. But then uh, I wasn't quite sure. However, I have this background. So I have, I'm pretty sure it's dropped down to a misdemeanor now, but I have a fifth degree felony possession on my record. I have a gross misdemeanor, I think child endangerment because I was using around, around her when my daughter when she was like 10 months. And so these are things that, that stick with you and uh, not something that like I could even imagine doing now. Uh, same with like thefts. I have thefts on my record and geez, I I don't, don't steal from anybody, but um,
0: except my bank account. Yeah, but-
1: exactly. <laughs> That's warranted. Um, <laughs> but I was just thinking that I, that I went So I went to school for this, even though I wanted to be a dental hygienist. So that was kind of my goal. I was thinking I'd be a dental hygienist, um, something I wanted to work towards before I became uh, somebody that was addicted to heroin. And so that's what I really wanted to do. However, that was going to be a lot of work. And not just because I had to go to school, but because I have a background. And so where am I going to get a job? I can never work at Mayo Clinic. Uh, even today, unless maybe I go get my record expunged, um,
0: which may or may not work.
1: Right. And I don't even know. And so that was, it was kind of just, this is what I need to do because they, you know, many places will hire you because you have the experience of somebody who used substances. And then you also have the education now and, Uh, They do not give me... So I have a temporary license. They do not give me a full license yet. And I'm not... So until I have my bachelor's degree. So I'm going for social work. And I will hopefully have my bachelor's degree by February. And then I'll be able to be a fully licensed LADC. However, I have to apply for the license differently than other people. Uh, I have to send in even now. And this is six and a half years later since i've used substances to fill a void or a need so i'll have to send in all this documentation with first i have to write a letter on why i deserve this and why i will do really well at this job and then i also have to send in all my police reports i had to go down to each county that i was ever had an offense in and gather all that information and and just a a ton more things that I guess a person without a substance use disorder doesn't have to do. So even with this job as an alcohol and drug counselor, I still have to do that stuff. So I just figured this is probably the best route and turns out, I think I'm pretty good at it.
0: It's one of those things that wants me, uh, makes me want to go on a real big rant because, and not because it's just you. Um, that might be reason enough, but just, you know, the involvement of the recovery community And in that world and listening to story after story after story, whether they had a felony or not, it it typically applies more or less to the ones that have some sort of felony, usually involving uh, theft or um, a a reckless endangerment or a child endangerment, something of that nature. And I, I understand the charges. I don't know how accurate they are in certain situations. Okay, but. Regardless, and theft usually is, you know, stealing stuff to sell to buy, uh, whatever it is. However, that type of stuff was driven by the uh, disorder, and now you have people who are the poster childs for a broken. Or no, I got I got to make sure I word this properly. They're poster childs for our quote-unquote rehabilitation system. Right. That doesn't rehabilitate squat short of I never want to go back to jail or prison again. There's no other you know, rehabilitation service involved or if it is it's put on by the uh inmates themselves. Uh so we don't really do that but anyways, we ha- we have people that are the shining examples of what we want, look, the system works. And then let's just say we had a real system there, whether it's through the prisons or the, well, I guess we'll just say the prison and jail system. Or you went through a recovery program or I shouldn't say went through because it's it's not like something you get to the end and you're done. Right. It's kind of a life, lifelong thing. Even I hate saying that because.
1: Well, if you continue to work on yourself, and this is everybody, but you continue to work on yourself, you grow, you're you're open-minded, you want to learn. So one thing is like, once I stop learning, I stop growing and and that's kind of how I live. So I'm not constantly thinking about my substance use disorder. I mean, that's very small amount of my time unless like a super highly stressful situation and it's going on for days i mean it might enter my head but it does get less and less because i've really worked on myself and loving who i am and and just constantly adding things in that it's like okay i messed up here let me go apologize and work on that or something like that yeah. where it, and i think that's that can be learned from for everybody really to lead a better life or
0: I just I paused the breaks on what I was about to say simply because there's a number of people that never they're not part of any statistics, they're not a part of any they're not mentioned because they're not tracked. Mhm. That just one day stop. It's like uh enough of this. Done. Absolutely. There's yep. another group of people and again, I don't there's no statistics on them or if they are they're you know, it's muddy but they do go through a program and they're done, uh, like done using, we'll just say. Uh, and then we have, and, and this would be a whole nother tangent. So I'm just going to mention it and I'm not going down the road.
1: There's many roads. Uh, yeah, we could go. Yeah.
0: The the neuroplasticity. Uh, it's something that I think the data is really building up heavy on. And I, I think that if anything, it provides a lot of hope. But other than that, where I was going initially is you have these shining examples of recovery. I'll just use you as an example that, you know, whatever the legal issues, custody issues, if you will, if we want to call them custody, I guess, but whatever. You came out at some point, you made the decision that you're done and you worked really, really, really hard. And you got there and you jumped through the hoops and you, you got your kids back. You got, um, you know, worked your way up in different jobs. You're going on uh, your education. And all of a sudden, it's like there's a lot of things that could be going very, very well for you. And I'm not saying they're not going well for you, but there's these hurdles like you're talking about that you have to jump. We're now the stuff that I'm not sure the punishment fits the crime anymore. Not that you whatever you did is now totally forgivable. But at some point it's um, counterproductive to keep grinding you down, running you down and not just you, anybody, anybody period. I mean, we're going to focus on this specifically, but anybody period at some point there's no, what's the gain of holding somebody down? You made mistakes, uh, bad decisions, suffered from the use disorder, whatever you want to say, however you want to phrase it, good, bad, or otherwise. And again, it's not so much like total forgiveness, but it doesn't make sense to keep throwing up the roadblocks or these big walls for you to try to, well, you can't even climb over them. There's no climbing around. It's a dead end. And it doesn't help anybody anymore it does no good because why what would what's the logic of holding you or somebody else down that they're on the path that you wanted them to be on the the reason you got punished the way you got punished is they wanted you to change your behavior in a certain way and then you do it and oh by the way there's all these roadblocks now anyways
1: for the rest of your life yeah
0: yeah it makes no sense to me it really gets me revved up about it because it's not just You. It's not just, you know. I'm going to say addicts right now, but it's not just them. It's also other uh, crimes, criminals, if you will. the The punishments doled out to affect change worked. You know, I'm not saying the punishments themselves worked, but the people got the message that you gave these punishments out to. They made the changes that you wanted them to make, and yet there's. The reward is no longer there short of, well, you know, good job, you, you changed, but there is now a ceiling you cannot get past. And I I have big problems with that. I have really, really big problems with that. And I can't even
1: rent an Airbnb.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so. Well,
1: and and I think just, I don't want to trash the justice system or anything, uh, just just Really, I speak from my experience, not as this research professional or like I know everything. I mean, I have, especially education-wise, I could go a long way with being a substance use counselor, counselor in general. General, So I'm sure there's even a lot more information out there. But just, just from my experience, watching people have criminal charges and they want to live better, like you were saying. They want to gain stability. And the judge says, do all this. You need to do this. Otherwise, I am putting you in prison. You have 64 months hanging over your head. Do this, 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 and that. Go to treatment. Follow recommendations, whatever that means, which really puts the power in my hands. So if I decide whatever, then I can, if they decide they don't want to do it, I can go and say, he didn't follow my recommendations. Well, that's a mess in itself, too. But um, hopefully most try to be as honest as possible. But yeah.
0: But th- I think that what you're saying there will lead into our, I'm hoping right. this conversation goes.
1: Yeah. Housing, jobs, visit your kids, all this stuff. And so going back to the beginning, I can't get housing, right? <laughs> How do I get housing? Well, you're not working hard enough. I've called 35 places. Nobody will give me a place. So now I'm back. I'm living either homeless or I'm living with the people you told me to stay away from because yeah. I have nobody else in my life.
0: Yeah. Because they're the only ones that'll take you in.
1: Yeah. Right. Because now the people you need to be away my from the father, yep. my brothers, whatever. They've all, for good reason, have basically disown me until I have a significant amount of time sober and stable, right? And so now what happens many times and why they get wrapped back up is that they're going over to these friend's house who's continued to use. And they tell the judge, well, I live somewhere. I have a stable place. Okay. And even with that, it's hard, but.
0: Yeah, even if that specific domicile is fairly clean and clear and nobody's using inside it, it's in the middle of the neighborhood that right. you were you know, that, that this
1: Well, that's the thing too, low-income housing. Where is that? You know, it's not in the greatest and and to a point it's their responsibility as well. And so I try to because the lack of options, because I can't go, hey, why don't you move into this neighborhood? This is a really nice neighborhood. A lot of times I'm not preaching that because they probably would choose that. I have to inform them okay, you're going to live in this, it gives you a a roof over your head and then you're going to have to ignore everybody else and it's your your job to do that. And so maybe something, you know, and then I just go on, like maybe something you can do, you know, you're responsible for yourself, like all these things that I just feel like it would be really nice to be like, you know what, this is a really good neighborhood. I seen a house or whatever for rent over there, apply. You know, same with jobs too. I mean, it's the same thing with that is... And then, you know, they'll want time for their kids and you're not hugging your kids well enough for (laughs) it's just it really it's really hard and sets people up to fail. However, like like you had said, I don't I don't want to make it like they're just fragile and they're going to, you know, whatever it it comes down to choice and 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 building a support system so that when you have those struggles and when those things are going on, that you're coming to somebody like this was the worst day (laughs) this 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 happened to me and then having that person to either hold you accountable whether you're getting into that like um, pity party which is very classic especially in the early uh, part of recovery or if it is a tough day and let me be here to support you I'm sorry you're going through that
0: you would want the quote-unquote system to try to stack the odds in people's favor You wouldn't necessarily take somebody who's on a weight loss journey and hang out at buffets and, you know, the ice cream parlor. It just, at some point, they're going to break. not that some can't. They can just tune it out. Okay, you have the banana split. I'm good. I'll sip on this water. But man, over time, day in, day out, Good days, bad days, when do they break? And I guess a quick thing about the employment stuff is, uh, regardless of who you hire, but I guess we're speaking almost primarily about uh, people with substance use disorders and probably more so whether they've uh, been charged with uh, crimes or convicted of crimes, giving them the chance oftentimes leads to the most loyal employees because you gave them a chance nobody else would give them the time of day they'd fill out the application they're honest on it you know following whatever program honesty honesty shot down shot down shot down or probably not even shot down as much as ignored you know no callbacks no callbacks and then finally somebody gave them a chance and you're you're gonna fail. Because you're going to fail. Because I've hired a whole bunch of other people that didn't have records. They didn't, as far as I could tell, have substance use disorders. And I had to get rid of them anyways. Because they just didn't want to do what we needed done. You know, didn't want to work. Whatever. The other thing. Some of the social stuff. I I think a lot of times. Uh, and I think I've even really witnessed it in my family. I don't know that I've seen it so much Leveled at you, but I have some cousins that I feel that it was that they were for they were treated a certain way because they had a substance use disorder or, or a uh, addiction that even if they weren't really ever in trouble, no DUIs, but everybody knew they had trouble. Maybe they had to go to rehab. They were treated differently and. It seemed generally acceptable by everyone, and I have big problems with that. It seems arbitrary to me. They've done nothing to you. They've done nothing to hurt you. So you mentioned your your family, like uh, I think your mom and your brothers and whatnot. They may have an argument. I'm not sticking up for them or anything. But you kind of alluded to them kind of distancing themselves from you because stuff that happened affected them. Lies, manipulations, whatever, okay? That's somewhat sensible that, okay, you, you got to earn back some trust. That that makes sense, right? That's just a, a normal social dynamic that outside of the whole substance abuse world, no matter what. But now people that were not affected by this, not directly, they're going to put you through some BS simply because Essentially, the way society views people with substance use disorders. So now you have hoops to jump through, fire to walk through. You can, you know, this, this path, that's kind of BS. But nobody, there's not going to be really anybody, really anybody to get your back. And there you sit. You're going to jump through more and more, and everybody kind of does it to you, and it just kind of. It's just like one more brick on your freaking shoulders or back, you know, just it, it keeps pushing you down or working on you. And I'm not trying to leave like out for anybody to go back and go back to their that coping. But at some point, do you have freaking blame them like, holy hell, they can't find a place to live, can't find a job. And then they go to their family and, okay, you know, I kind of screwed over my brother, so he's kind of avoiding me. I deserve that. I, You know, I'm going to keep working on apologizing and earning back his trust. But my aunt and uncle over here, they're totally unaffected by what I've done to myself or life. They're still treating me like crap. I can't wrap my head around it and... Why, you know, over the course of all those things, why wouldn't it contribute at least to that choice?
1: With that, honestly, I think it's because they don't understand; they don't know anything about it.
0: Well, we've sold the stigmatization.
1: Well, right, because in there are a lot of people with, who might fit that while they're in the active part of their substance use disorder, right? They're manipulating and lying and stealing and and whatnot. Some people don't, a lot of people do. However, just people aren't educated on like neuroplasticity, the disease model, anything uh, about it. They might have a little bit of understanding because they maybe have a family member, you know, and depending on whether that family member, maybe they've always been in that using part And they've never really transferred into the recovery part of it. And so that's all they're seeing all the time. It's important, mostly, especially if you love the person that is the one using substances to educate yourself. I think you did it. I mean, it was fantastic because I think it helped me so much to have somebody truly cared to research and figure it, not even figure it out, like you have it all figured out, Maybe you think so.
0: But. I did an episode with Carm on his podcast. Um, it was the first addiction episode that I, I blatantly state that I thought I knew what addiction was. Right. Basically based off high school and whatever, some college.
1: that I had people. addiction yep.
0: college, but like a workplace yep. issues type of a class that, okay, I kind of knew. You know, I meet you and, you know, whatever... Details aren't all that important, but those ideas, uh, and me and they weren't beliefs because I, I changed them pretty quick. It's pretty rough for people to change beliefs rapidly. So my ideas
1: But you did a deep dive into research, which I think a lot of people don't or I don't right. can't say, but that's what you did, and it really worked, where other people around me I didn't really see do that. They were just like, She's manipulated, she's a liar. I can't trust that she's in recovery. This time, you know, and that's, and it was understandable. Like, I, I completely understood and was defeated. And luckily, I mean, I had you in my life, and I had a couple other people in my life that were holding me accountable and supporting me during that when I had nobody else. And so, those main three people, or whatever, I started picking up the phone and calling them. And that's just so important. Find anybody. It doesn't have to be your family. Okay, your family abandoned you, right? And that might be the, the verbiage people are using. And it's like, well, you did some pretty nasty things yep. while you were in actively using. And so, yes, they did. But there's other people out there that will absolutely support you. And you got to find them. And that might be at meetings. Mine was at, um, I did go to meetings for a, a long time, consistently for at least two years every Saturday. And Sunday and then it was every Sunday and you might find people there you might find people at church I found people at a recovery community center so those are out there and you know there's a ton of people out there and I may be connected with two of them really well and that got me through oh, the first three years honestly until now I have a very good support system and I know who to call and I'm very comfortable doing that and Uh, asking for help, you know, and and (laughs) because a lot of times I don't know it all. (laughs) So I need to reach out. You,
0: You have a support system there, but there's a lot of times where you don't need the support system because you've gotten to the point where you can process it on your own.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Majority of the time.
0: Yeah. Nobody's 100%. But-
1: well, that first year is, I would say, like there's a, a book out there. It's called, I think it's just called The Recovery Book. And they list in there that the first 18 months is the red zone, the danger zone. And that's really where you're most prone to uh, relapse, uh, use again. So. So you have to be really careful. And that might be the time where, yeah, your coping skills, you're not utilizing those. You don't even have those. What are those, right? (laughs) So it's right. So that first 18 months, you're reaching out. It might be every day. It might be twice a day. I don't know. It might be laying in bed all day in tears and not knowing what to do until, right, you start building that and you build yourself up and go back to loving yourself and stuff like that.
0: And you may have had to scrap or you should be scrapping the vast majority of your coping skill, uh, systems or skills uh, in that first 18 months and then trying to find new coping skills and not liking them because a lot of times the coping skill is actually feeling those feelings yep and going through those stages not, not I mean I, I suppose stages of grief in many cases. It sucks Um, and kind of not to go back too much, but it's just when when we're talking about like the studying and stuff for me, the thing that triggered it really was I had these ideas and they weren't adding up. They weren't Mm -hmm. what I was viewing in, in real life and real time did not align with these ideas. So now I know my ideas are broken or you're just a real outlier, right? Certainly possible, but it was much easier to believe that my ideas were wrong. And then it didn't take much deep dive at first to realize just how wrong and how much crap I've been fed through, you know, the education system and then just society in general and the media, you know, whatever that the news, television, uh, TV shows, movies, whatever. And then you start going deeper and deeper into now the, the medical studies and the scientific studies and realizing the breach between the two. You know, there's a big split between this being um, a disease uh, or, you know, I've said it before, neuroplasticity. And again, I am don't, don't want to go down that road right now that's what really fueled fueled it. That's what really fueled it is that what I thought I knew was not manifesting itself in real life It nothing correlated. And then I found the more I started digging, the more things made sense and I could see it in real life with us, with you. And then that changed, you know, I'm not going to say it's, you know, made our relationship any better or anything or worse or anything like that. It just changed the way I viewed things specifically mm-hmm. um, with your actions slash choices slash views that it made it a lot easier for me. And then hopefully because of that, it made it easier for you and made me more available as a confidant or something of that nature not saying my answers were ever all that good. I mean, some of them in retrospect were pretty crappy, but my heart was in the right place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not to make a big story out of that, but um yeah, I just, these trials, trials by fire that I, I see people put through for no other reason than the label of addict or junkie or alcoholic, you know, mm-hmm. and, Never considering the, especially, you know, if they're, you know, Thanksgiving's right around the corner.
1: I know. It's tough. I, I at least lose one to two maybe over the holidays. Yeah. That go back.
0: Yeah. And is it before? Well, is it? I mean, I suppose <laughs> we could launch into a whole nother conversation. About I know. That, I was going
1: to say we might have to do a part two, but it's, it's usually many times. Uh, I mean, just like probably a lot of people know is holidays can be tough. Either they don't get along with their family or, you know, they don't see them very often, or there's an argument or something like that. And these are people you care about. And so it's a whole nother dynamic to using again. And then you also have people have trauma related uh, during their childhood or whatnot, and have grown up. And that's why they use uh, not that's why but that's what they turn to, to cope with the trauma and are, you know, are using because of that now they're reintegrating with these people twice a year around this time. And then also, families sometimes will drink, they're not going to change for them. You know, they're not going to put that down. So and I, I get that. So then I I get both sides, you know what I mean? I I really get the person who's trying to be in recovery and still go to those functions, even though there's alcohol because they want to be around their family and they don't want their family to put it down because, you know, it's their choice and blah, blah, blah. And and then, you know, and then the family side too, where it's like, should we, should we not? Oh no, we can't drink around them. That's another thing that families, I had a friend say to me, you know, one time before it was like, oh, you're not going to have a beer. And then it just was like weird anytime we hung out because she, I didn't drink. So then could we even talk about it? Could we, you know, (laughs) so it just made things awkward. And so that's kind of, kind of what happens sometimes at holidays where, you know, it's really awkward if they're not drinking, they've always drank, then it's really weird instead of just opening up and talking about it, you know, and uh, just trying to like be as normal as possible. And that's not, it's not normal. This isn't normal. We need to be open about it. And so it, or they're just drinking and having a good time. And, and you got the person trying to be in recovery in their first year, the danger zone. And they're sitting there like just
0: everybody else is having a good time. And yep. I'm,
1: and I can't crap. drink ever again, you know, and that's what gets rolling in their head. And they might not drink that weekend, this Thanksgiving weekend or use whatever is their substance of choice. Right. Um, but it might be the following weekend because now they saw this and they've steadily talked themselves into why this could be a good idea next weekend (laughs) or, you know, it's stuff like that. And so it's just tough. And, and usually if, if a family is a family members trying to be in recovery, uh, and they're not showing up to holidays. That might be the reason why, and that's okay. And we just have to be supportive of that. I'll I will tell a, one of my um clients' girlfriend is doing like a friendsgiving, right? Well, they're going to be drinking, so you know she's like, "Are you going to come with us?" Like you, you're not having any family, and he's like, "No, I'm not coming to that." And then she gets upset. Why aren't you coming to this? And so, but what he tells us in group, and I'm I. I'm not sure if he discussed it. I think he did discussed it with her or not. But I don't want to be around drinking. And like he's been around drinking throughout the year, like little bits here and there. But it is. It's that they're having fun and they're enjoying themselves. And it's a long weekend and they're drinking. And like he's decided that I'm going to stay home and do what I do uh, like it's yeah. any other day because I don't want to risk that. And that's important.
0: Yeah. And, and there's legality type issues here uh, with this thought. I get it. But it's really just kind of an an analogy is if the family regularly used heroin at these and you have somebody, a family member who's in recovery from opioid addiction, specifically heroin. How many people would view that? Let's just ignore for the time being that, you know, it's a controlled substance. How would you feel about this person walking into a party or a family gathering where everybody's using heroin. You probably scoff at the idea, but we think nothing of an you know an alcoholic in recovery going to a party and there's people drinking all around and slapping them on the back and oh you sure you don't want one and right. You know it's it's just so I'm pulling this t- totally out of off the cuff. That how would you feel? How would you feel if, let's just say drinking was one of your vices and we'll just say Thanksgiving because it's so close that we know your work schedule, you're not working that day. Okay, what if there's no, no drinking, no alcohol to be seen from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m.? and then if people wanted to do that it it would start you would have this window and then if you needed to you could you could bail is that a really kind of a crap um strategy would you feel would that make things even more odd cuz people are watching the clock waiting for you to go or waiting for six bells so they can
1: well, if that's what they were doing, then that would be yeah. weird. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> <So laughs> almost six. Then yeah. the party can really start.
1: Right, then it can go. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I don't think that's a bad idea. I, I think you just be up, open, and honest about it, though. And like instead of like behind the scenes doing that, and then you know I come into this party or Thanksgiving or whatever, and people are acting weird because they know something I don't. You know. And so uh, I think if you just somebody gives me a call like, hey, the family was talking and, you know, usually we have drinks here and you know that. And so we're thinking just from like two to six, we are not going to have any alcohol. And then if you uh, choose to stay or choose to leave, whatever, you know, and and just be open. I, I just really think that makes all the difference, like not be scared, not be afraid to come and talk to people with substance use disorder like it's this big oh, you know what I mean <laughs> like yeah. they just quit alcohol they just quit heroin oh my gosh and so and that's and but I understand that too from that point where people are not in this have never been in this and that's where we go back to that education piece again too and like if you have a family member go do your research because yes it will open Maybe not completely, but at least your eyes to what they're doing, how they're doing it, and so that you have some understanding. And then, like you said, um, yeah, at the party, I think ideas are always great and people should come with them. Like if people are truly in recovery, they're open minded. They're ready to make a difference.
0: Part of the reason it popped in my head was a uh, New Year's Eve party we went to that was... 100% sober and was there specifically for um, those in recovery. And it was an absolute blast. And I talked to a few people there, not running over and interviewing them, so to speak, but just in conversation. How important that was because that kind of got them out of a jam like they were really worried about relapse
1: mm-hmm.
0: that night. And could they keep it re- the relapse to that night, which might, you know, bring up uh, part of the subject for a part two in that you fall off the wagon. Uh, and how does that, that doesn't um, eliminate all the hard work you've done up to that point. But anyways, Correct. so yeah. that's, so that's I just know. an idea. <laughs> yeah. Tossing up, but that, that party was very, very important to them because it kept them from even thinking about drinking for at least or, or whatever party, whatever type of um, whatever substance might have been their choice that for at least a few hours, it didn't even dawn on them. They were having a blast playing. I mean, there's card games, board games, video games, music, food. Holy cow, the food. That could translate into any other type of a get family get together that
1: mm-hmm.
0: we can actually have quite a good time without this stuff. And then if right. that's what you want, that's what you associate with fun. I mean, again, I guess with alcohol, it's accepted. Mm-hmm. It's legal. Um, but you may have to start thinking about it just a little bit differently. I'm not saying demonize it, but just why is this so important? And then, especially if I've got somebody here in recovery, am I so much better than they are?
1: No, that I can't have fun without this for however many hours today, you know, and with socially acceptable. I was thinking uh, about this and I I did want to put in, I don't know if you're going to give me a last word or whatnot, but. um,
0: (laughs) You always get the last word.
1: (laughs) That's not true.
0: I don't even Uh, get the last word on my own show.
1: But if people are um <laughs> this alcohol, you know, I, I I believe it's one drink for a, for a female and two drinks for a male is having a drink, right?
0: Well that, that seems only fair.
1: Well, it, well, female actually have um there's something I, I can't remember what the enzymes called, but we don't actually have it. And so men do and they're able to process alcohol differently. And so that's one of the main reasons why women are become intoxicated faster, unless they're one of those women. No, just kidding. <laughs> Drinking under the table.
0: That's Anyways, pretty much every woman could drink. Yeah, me whatever, whatever the table. I can do
1: for you. Yeah, but I, you know, I one thing I get really frustrated about is it, it's hard for somebody with an alcohol use disorder to quote unquote be in recovery because of the social um acceptability of it. And so like for minus minus heroin, I have people that meth uh and random substances, whatever. So if they're able to cut everybody out of their life, which I've seen many do, and it's not like this is being sold on every, you know, each town, every corner, you know what I mean? Like you just walk in and they're like, here's a bag of meth for you. Okay. So <laughs> there's a little bit, a little bit easier. If you are truly motivated to stop, to to put it down, where alcohol is different because there's a liquor store, a bar, every, every town at least two. And then you also have like football games, right? We're watching a football game and you have commercials and you have billboards. Like I get so angry because I'm thinking my client is watching this football game right now. And those people look like they're having a ton of fun, you know? Yep. And that's not or
0: that's, that's how you relax
1: you right right back, exactly
0: pop and, open a cold one yeah it's so socially accepted alcohol and mm-hmm. i'm not begging on alcohol it sounds like i'm really no,
1: going I'm not, after
0: it it's I'm, all i don't want to sound but, like that but um just uh as a, a for instance something some illogic based off of it that i i find mildly amusing is um before we started dating and, and and honestly even before way before before
1: mm-hmm.
0: um just in the when I was dating uh even before the first marriage that women were if we're going on a date and they find out that I don't drink, they're more uncomfortable with me than they would be with somebody else that drinks, and their logic their logic was that they're going to be drinking, their inhibitions are going to drop. Therefore, since I'm sober, I will try to capitalize on that. This is what they're trying to explain to me, not quite so eloquently, but that's what they're trying to explain to me. And I'm responding with, wait, okay, so basically I have 100% of my facilities. I am more apt to try to take advantage of you than if I had my inhibitions dropped. That doesn't make that doesn't make sense to me. It seems like I would be more apt to take advantage of you with my inhibitions lowered than being stone sober. I I'm sorry. I, I can't I can't buy into that logic. And even if, you know, I felt like that was a pretty strong argument. Mm-hmm. No. no, they were there's still, eh, you know, I'm not gonna drink around you or I, I don't see this going anywhere because, you know, we can't. Right. kick back and relax or have a good time or you won't share this beverage with me. It's like, okay.
1: well, Yeah. Yeah. Before I, so talking about the bar and I guess before we met. So then the I had other, to wait
0: around and settle for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Gross <laughs> <terror>. Um. <laughs> so somebody had asked me if I wanted to drink. I said, no, you know, they're like, why not? Come on have a drink. You know, getting off work, whatever. And I said, no, I don't drink. And then one thing that said to me is, well, what do you do for fun? And I'm like, Ton, tons of stuff like is only drinking the only fun you can have. That's the only time that you can have fun is while you're drinking. And I just found that so interesting. And and like you had said uh, earlier about like if anybody uh showed any discomfort towards me or or any awkwardness or whatnot, you know, because I use substances, and that was kind of that just felt awkward to me. And there's a multitude of stuff that I've had happen. That people, you know, look down or have posted. Um, I had news articles and people were, you know, commenting on them. Instead of looking at the person, they're looking at the crime, right? Um, And and stuff like that. Whether or not I did it because they would put something out in a news article. So that's another trial and tribulation. Before I'm even uh, charged, sentenced. So this is allegedly, right? And they are trashing me on this thing. And so, actually, in, with that news article, I was never charged with those crimes that that was on there, and my, and my mom had to get on there and defend me. But, anyways, beside the point. But that's another thing. And so now your reputation's ruined in the community, and I ended up moving, and I really liked where I was living, and and stuff like that. Um, earlier, probably in about 2012. So I, I, we have to get off of here. But um, <laughs> one thing, one thing I wanted to say. Uh, to kind of leave, that's okay. The four pillars of recovery uh, is health. So obviously the first priority is your health. Uh, A lot of people come in and they have either uh, liver disease or from drinking, kidney, heart, diabetes, stuff like that. Uh, And that's always first and foremost has to be dealt with before I think treatment even works because they're in pain. And so that's all they can think about. And then home, and that's kind of what we were talking about, having a stable home life and a safe place to live. So you don't want to go home and it's constantly toxic. And that's another thing that can really lead to relapse or is really a break in that pillar. So that's what I'll talk to people about. It's like your pillar is breaking down. And how are you going to mend that or whatever, that part of that four pillars? So, And the next one is purpose. Everybody obviously needs a purpose in life. Uh, and, and a lot of times women will sometimes have advantages over that because they have kids. So I run an all men's group and they'll talk about, you know, they have kids, but they're not primarily in their life. The mother has them and well, you know, whatnot. So they don't really feel like they have a purpose and trying to find find that.
0: It ends up being employment a lot of times. It does. It really,
1: really does. And so now going back to that trial of not being able to get employed or at least, you know, you have that stigma or whatever that comes with it when you're employed. Oh, watch out for him. He used to use drugs or alcohol, you know, so or as a problem. So and then uh, community, because we can't do this alone. So and that's number one. I think that's for everybody is you always need that one person if you truly and not usually your significant other, not to say anything, but you want somebody additionally to provide support and accountability so that um, you have somebody outside of your other pillar, which is home. And uh, it, it's truly, truly important. You have a couple people that is part of your community. And yeah, those are the four pillars. And I would also recommend people volunteer because that is proven to uh, increase your mood and stimulate you in a way that is healthy and all it is is you know an hour a week it could be so yeah health home purpose and community
0: oh very cool well we definitely have material for uh, episode two or maybe even more I really do appreciate you uh joining me on here um of course So I actually just want to thank you for being on here. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget, you can uh, find me on any of your favorite podcast listening apps. And this is Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z, part of the Aftermarket Radio Network. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.